My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Always there are going to be some big fish out there waiting to be caught, even from the shore. The problem these days, it seems, is that as these fish are so few and far between, the chances of picking one up are remote, to say the least. We're at the stage now in 2013 where a fish which some shore anglers once realistically dreamt of catching, if they put in the right measure of effort and had a bit of luck, would now be national news, even from a boat. That's a measure of the pressure fish stocks are now under, both in terms of reduced volume as well as not leaving enough individuals to at least offer some chance of achieving monster proportions. But it hasn't always been that way. In my lifetime there's been the opportunity for some truly outstanding fishing, both from the boat and the shore, the likes of which, unfortunately, we're unlikely ever to see again. Plymouth veteran Mike Milman once said to me that growing old didn't particularly bother him, because from a fishing point of view at least, he'd both been there and had taken part in the very best of it, and that now, in his opinion, it's pretty much all gone. Theoretically, I suppose, there is still the chance of a big fish, wherever and whenever you drop a bait into the water but we're talking here of extremely isolated and very rare occurrences. Yet within the last 30 years, cod of £32 and £25 were taken from the shore in a single session by the same man, who around the same time also put another fish of over £40 onto the scales, not to mention many other big cod and bumper hauls taken either side of those two particular occasions. That man is Whitley Bay angler Ken Robinson, who besides being a highly successful shore match angler, is also an equally successful shore specimen hunter into the bargain. Now people could argue that he was only able to be so successful between the 1960s and the late 1980s because there were big fish around to be caught. Obviously, without them, it would have been impossible. But that isn't the whole story, because not everybody at that time shared your level of success. These fish had to be located, their movements, the timing and the feeding habits sussed out, after which they still needed to be caught. So can we first start with your earliest days on the shore fishing scene, how you got into fishing in the first place, and how this progressed to the pursuit of really big fish, particularly in Scottish waters. Earliest recollection of fishing really was, uh, I think, when my grandmother gave me, would you believe, a, a rod and reel set that was gained via the old Kensides cigarette coupons. So it was a... <laughs> Quite a lowly start, I guess. Most of my initial days were spent on the northeast, fishing around Whitley Bay, Blythe. It was uh, back in the beginning of the sixties, early days. Most of the, the fishing I did, I suppose, was estuary fishing. Until I met up with a friend of my dad's, who actually started to take me down on the the shoreline. It was, I suppose, a an interesting way to, to get started because the guy was quite knowledgeable really and was fishing some of the competitions and that uh, was a, a member of the timeout club. From that sort of situation, obviously with beginning to fish a few little sort of competitions when I was in the early teens, I started to meet up with one or two of the, the local lads who I, I fish with quite often these days and s- still associate with the same ones, strangely enough. That really got us around on the, the northeast, around sort of Whitley Bay on the open rock edges and the, the beaches. And from that, it was, I suppose, finding competition fishing, which sort of forced us to have a look at 
different sort of methods and explore around sort of what we could get at walking around or on bikes. Obviously, at that sort of stage, we, well, I certainly had no transport. I was totally reliant on some of the, the older guys that I, that I fished with at that time. Getting into the sort of the teenage years, I had quite a, an opportunity to sort of move around. It was strange, the path that we took. At that time of sort of life, we were moving and fishing further up the coast, going up to the likes of Eyemouth, which was deeper water, and a, a slightly different type of fishing for codlins. But it sort of broadened one's horizons a little bit in so much as they, you started to find that there were different places to fish and there were bigger fish, to be quite honest. It was not long after that then that we sort of decided that we would move across to the west coast where we've been finding that people have been getting a lot of fish, a variety of better fish, in the Scottish Clyde and the Locks, probably in the early 60s, sort of mid-60s, we moved across and fished some of the um, the locks not long, and probably, I would guess, during the sort of mid-60s to late-60s, probably fished half the year, weekend-wise, in Scotland. And it was quite often that we actually meet up with a lot of the, the other anglers from the, the northwest, your side of the country which was uh, interesting to say the least because we all had different exposure to types of fishing and although we all wanted to catch the same sort of fish, uh, Northwest was a different type of venue and as, as a consequence they came with different tactics and obviously that interchange meant that we came away from it with slightly enhanced attributes in terms of being able to see other bits of tackle and other approaches to longer distance casting some circumstances. It was uh, something that we didn't do locally. A lot of their venues on this side of the country, of course, were such that you didn't have to cast any great distance to catch anything quite large, so it was uh, a slight change and it was a novelty to meet with other characters who were slightly different. Now that would be around the same time as the famous trio from Medinborough fishing the Gantocks from their tiny open 14-foot displacement boat powered by a four-horse seagull outboard and at the time bringing in dozens of cod between 20 and way over 40 pounds, which to some extent you actually witnessed. Yeah, back in uh, early 80s by then, was it? I'd have to put some dates to it, but we were travelling up to the Clyde very, very frequently, virtually every other weekend, I would guess, would be into the Clyde or into the locks. And it was one February, I remember distinctly, absolutely distinctly, there was... Probably at least two carloads of us from the East Coast had gone up to fish in the Rue Narrows on the Gairlock. And we came across catching sort of quite a few codlins, nothing exceptional, but uh, spotted some guys in a boat fishing the Narrows. And I've never, ever seen as many big fish come out in the boat. And I've seen some big fish come out wrecking off the East Coast and other places, Ireland, etc. But these I'd never seen anything like it from a small little clinkerbilt boat unbelievable and uh, that led us to want to really have a little go at that despite the fact that we, we couldn't actually get these monsters off the shore and we remembered one day when we were on the other side where the guys really were renowned for catching the big fish up there at that time Mr Dinny etc 
they launched their boat over on the other side of the Clyde by the clock lighthouse. We used to see and talk to an old guy who actually had a, a clinker-built boat. We actually asked him if we could borrow his boat one day after he'd been out and see if we could emulate these characters. But being novice boat persons, I suppose, um, we weren't really au fait with the use of the boat and we could have been <laughs> still paddling out there uh, because we didn't really understand how to use the, the engine or at least slacken off the little nut on the petrol tank. And as a consequence, we ended up rowing back in and that was our pale effort at trying to emulate our stars of that particular time, Mr Dinny and Mr Freshwater, and certainly left us with a, an appetite to find and catch bigger fish, but it was always from the shore from my perspective. From then, obviously, any noted catches anywhere in the country, really, we tried to follow and tried to make the best opportunity of any option that there was, and that led us, of course, to the fish in the 80s, the back end of the 80s, in uh, the Solway Firth, some monsters that were there at that particular time for a period, and obviously that left its mark with me. Because many of the Clyde marks are now consigned to history, most people still fishing today will know little, if anything, about them in terms of the geography, approach to fishing, and most important of all, what they had the potential to regularly produce. My experience really started around fishing some of the matches that we fished in the Clyde and around that sort of area. The Clyde itself, the marks on the Clyde were completely different realistically to those of uh, the the locks that were associated with the Clyde. What was quite interesting was that you'd get generally a better quality of fish once you moved into the locks and what you would find is that you had some areas of extremely deep water, relatively deep water, very, very accessible. And you had coming from Helensborough, which is obviously the route we were taking from the northeast, we would come up and fish the Gairlock. One of the, our favourite places was, of course, the Rue Narrows at uh, the Gairlock. And whilst there was a long spit from what would be the the sort of north east side of the Gairlock, we preferred to fish on the other side at Rosneath. Rosneath being a very smaller point and it had the encumbrance of a, a large pole, what would probably be equivalent of a telegraph pole, stuck out in the water. Even at low water you were probably 30 yards away from the actual post. And I, I guess that was there for the guidance of the, the submarines that came in and out of there, the English submarines. But that was a, a fabulous spot and you had to fish it with care. It was deep and, of course, as the, the Rue Narrows suggests, it was an area where you had this vast waterway which all ebbed and flowed through the Narrows itself and it was capable of producing some super fishing. Fairly deep water, but it was rough ground and where we fished Ross Neath, what you find is that it's sort of shallower as it progresses inwards and it, it's rocky and not heavy weed, but reasonable weed and there was a lot of codlins, a lot of cold fish. It was probably one of our favourite areas. The areas that were most prolific were the Holy Lock and the Gare Lock. I've got a, a suspicion that because it wasn't accessible to commercial vessels because of the submarines of the Yanks and, and our English ones, 
the locks were quite a good haven for most species of fish, and it was very, very popular. Some of the piers that you have, it you've got one in Lock Long at Arrack End, you've got one in Holy Lock, and we had other areas that were very easily accessed by a vehicle, which was half the battle. You were fishing into very steep-sided, sort of heavy, weeded ground, cast a reasonable distance, virtually the line would end up back at your feet. And it was certainly in the 60s and 70s, I think we're a bit single-minded. The approach to the fishing was, if you were looking for cod and anything else came along, great, but you tended to fish with the same baits, same tactics, and end up with a, a variety of species. And it was quite interesting that you could actually catch some fairly good quality specimens, generally mostly on crab, although fish baits work now and again, but primarily it would be a good crab bait and you would get some super fish out of haddock. Strangely enough, there were hake taken. I used to be hake taken down finots at the, the far end, but personally I've never seen one, but uh, there were certainly they were, they were commercially taking them from the entrance of the lock at Finnards Bay down that area, which is quite unusual. The uh, sort of specimens that we'd seen in there, it wasn't unusual to get some big, big haddocks and get some big coalfish. In fact, it was one of the areas we used to take the, the juniors from the fishing club up for a long weekend, generally over the sort of beginning of the summer. And as a consequence, they had the luxury of obviously some quite skilled anglers with them. I certainly remember some super fish. There was one of them in a, I don't even know where this it was certainly a record at the time, I think, and it was a 10-pound coalfish taken from the side of the lock on a crab bait. It was a super fish, and it, certainly a lot of half-decent coalies were prevalent within the lock, and you, you also got big runs of mackerel running up inside of the locks, and of course that must have been an attraction for other species, and I'm sure if we persevered a bit more with fish baits and other sort of approaches, I'm sure we would have got a lot more fish other varieties it would be quite interesting to see what happens up there certainly never heard of any taupe or anything like that I mean there's plenty of those further down in the, the Solway but I never heard of any up there certainly not in my time and you also had a bumper trip one evening on Loch Long fishing for conger fishing Loch Long was one of the favoured options in fact what we generally did was we tended to go for a, a weekend with a competition on a, a second day and we would fish the previous day, previous night, get up first light or before first light and fish in the mornings uh, and then go and fish the match. And it was surprising what sort of quality of fish we would actually get on those first light trips. It was virtually guaranteed you were going to get a fish in the double figures. I had a trip where, being a non-driver in my teens, I was obviously reliant on others and I had a group of pals I would go and fish with who were older than I was and certainly was... Uh, a few of us had gone up on the weekend and fished and I decided that I was going to stay over because I knew another group of friends were coming up the following day. So those first few days we'd been out and decided to go and have a, a fish halfway down Loch Long. One of the guys, Malcolm MacDonald, who no doubt quite a lot of people know, worked for the council and as a consequence he'd brought one of these enormous gas road lights. Great, enormous thing and obviously... In Scotland, in, in the, the sort of locks area, it's pitch black. 
water side. You're fishing just down below the road that runs along the lock itself. And we paired off. There was, I think, about six of us in total. I fished with Malcolm. We had this big road light. And, of course, we had this area lit up. And fishing, probably this... Well, it was. It was a, it was the same sort of rigs or tackle that we would use for the codlins. We're using uh, sort of... 12, 13 foot rods, 7,000 reels and standard sort of 30 pound line. But we fishing for conga in the dark. As soon as it got dark, we, we got down and put the gear in and fishing single hooks, big macro baits. Um, as I said, six of us, although thereabouts, we're probably about 50 to 100 yards apart in pairs. So we could hear each other, but we couldn't actually see them. And during that evening and into the night, it was just a case of fish after fish. It was unbelievable. But what was really sad was that we were stupid at that sort of time in terms of the environment. And we were keeping these fish, which was absolutely ridiculous, but that was what was at that particular time. But during that night, we had some superb... Well, it's the best conger fish in I've had. Now, fish for conger all over the place. Nothing of any... Great size, I think probably the biggest fish was probably 20, 25 pounds, but we had in excess of 40 fish, and we had these these fish in every sort of half hour or so, you would hear somebody shout, I've got another one on, and this went on, as I'd say, for quite a long time. Some super fish. But what really stands out in my mind about that particular time was that we, we had these particular fish and we made it right of killing them which is shocking as I keep saying um, but we'd gone down the next morning to the pier at Arica and we fished on the pier at Arica and we we actually ended up on that pier with something like 10 different species of fish fishing into the, the back end of the lock rays conger codlings coldfish pollock just unbelievable time when there was just masses of fish in the lock itself and it was Actually, probably one of the, one of the, the most sort of interesting trips I've had up to the locks. In so much as that, the day after I parted with this group of people, I actually stayed overnight in the Arica Hotel, which was something of a novelty for me being in a hotel. But I got picked up from there the next day, and we went off for another two or three days fishing. I'm not sure whether I was supposed to be at work, but I certainly didn't get the work, and we went fishing further down the lock about a night, two nights later, and we fished from the house, which is just up from the big car park on Lock Long. And we'd been fishing all through the night. We'd had the conga baits out. We'd had odd fish. We had, I think there was small codlin taken, but there were several congas, but not a lot. But as soon as the light started to come up, about four in the morning, something like that, we got the first bite, and it turned out to be a codling of about £10. And that was on the, the macro bait. So we, we persevered with the macro bait, and we put some of the, the crab baits out on the, the big gear. And uh, it was one of those mornings where it was just fish after fish, all of them being around the sort of uh, 8 to £15. It was just an unbelievable catch. We had... I think we had somewhere in, in the order of £400 between three of us. The smallest fish was a, a one taken on a, a boat rod, last cast, with a conga bait on, probably only about 40 yards out. And it was 
just a, an exceptional sort of week and certainly one that stays in one's memory for a hell of a long time. Then suddenly, and it was very rapid, the whole of the inner Clyde fishery crashed. The 60s was a, a mecca for the Clyde. What was catastrophic about the whole thing was overnight fish seemed to disappear. The locks were protected, certainly from the commercial aspect, by the naval bases. And as a consequence, I do think that that was one of the, the saving factors for that, that particular area. But what we've seen since then is a complete, complete failure of a white fish fishery that just appears to have been virtually no whitefish left in either the Clyde or within the locks themselves. What's really frustrating, I think, is that it's potentially one of Scotland's major opportunities if they had protected that particular infrastructure, that Clyde infrastructure. It, it's very difficult to actually see why anything would cause such a failure of those sort of fishing catches. Even the congas don't appear to be there in any numbers. Certainly, obviously, the, the hake fishery disappeared overnight, I guess. But I think to a degree, the anglers also contributed to their own downfall to a degree in so much as that we were fairly poor at actually returning any fish. In fact, I would suggest no fish were returned at all in any way whatsoever. And I think the fact that these big fish that were taken were certainly a lot of spawning fish and certainly the, the big fish we got off the shore were often full of rose, etc. And it's quite likely that that area was a nursery area. And as a consequence, I think, of the media exposure that we gave it, certainly I was one of a number, I guess, that <laughs> exposed the Solway area, but certainly back in the days of Dinny and Freshwater, and that, it, it was suddenly the, the, here's these monster fish. Then the commercials obviously homed straight in on this and obliterated that. Now, I find it very difficult to suggest that the problems that we experience with trawling off the, these coasts, etc., which certainly kills the ground, I don't believe that the locks it would be feasible for them to actually do the same sort of damage as the, the sort of shape of the, the locks themselves, the depth, the hard ground and the weed that proliferates around the edges. It would seem most difficult for them to actually totally denude that of a habitat for the fish. There has to be something fundamental. Is it possible the fact that we've just wiped out the, the brood stock, the root cause? Or is there some fundamental problem that's occurred with uh, pollution or something of that ilk? It just seems rather strange and certainly nobody has ever suggested anything that could be the real root cause. I, I certainly haven't heard of anything, but certainly I think the fact that we've killed off most of the broodstock probably has helped speed up the process of failure. The problem was that it wasn't only anglers who lost out due to this greed. A lot of people within the Inner Clyde region had invested a lot of money into catering for visiting anglers in an area where any other employment was always going to be hard to find. Oh, absolutely. I think it was one of Scotland's major opportunities for a, a really good tourist facility. The waterway itself, that whole infrastructure right back up to the Solway, all the way through, if that was protected, they would have a, a superb area that would... If you go back to the, certainly the 60s, and I know people find travel much easier now, but uh, it's such an attraction. It was so good 
if we put it constraints not only on the commercials but but on ourselves I do a lot of traveling to the States, etc., and their controls are superb. I mean, you just don't kill everything, and they don't just pick a number and say that's as many as you can catch. They actually say you won't kill fish that are within a specific size range, which obviously is aimed at protecting the broodstocks. We're hopeless, but Scotland has a major missing opportunity. I mean, this would have rivaled the salmon fishing in Scotland. I think it would have produced quite a lot of money for them. It really is a missed opportunity. It's sad, really is sad. This was about the same time as we up here in the North West were also experiencing what we now affectionately term as the file jumbo cod era. And anglers down in South Wales, particularly from the Swansea area, were also enjoying a similar level of big cod success. Then, perhaps a little later than the Clyde collapse, say in the mid-1980s, that big fish run also disappeared. So maybe the various strands of it were in some way closely interlinked. I certainly feel that they're obviously part of the same stock of fish. There was a timeliness in terms of the fish that were moving through from your northwest area and certainly up into the Clyde and the Solway. Now, whether the fish were in the Solway at the same time they were in the Clyde, history doesn't seem to indicate that, although there were odd fish being caught in the Solway and in certainly up to the, the east side of the Solway in terms of around Cumbria, there were the odd fish back at the same sort of time as they were getting them up the Clyde. But the Clyde had ceased, well ceased, when the Solway were getting fish and, or the big fish, the big cod, the big cod run, and the ones in the northwest. I think the demise was about the same sort of time as, as the Solway. And I know that the Solway really had very intense commercial pressure. Uh, I know one of the commercials up there and and he would tell me that there were boats out in the Solway main big cod area and they were pulling big fish out. So whether they were taking the fish out that we would get after the seas when the fish came a bit closer in so we could actually reach them with the baits we were putting out. But again, it, is it a case of us killing off the broodstock because these are all the big real mature breeding fish and I'd like to say <laughs> I would suggest that you did exactly what I did and we didn't return the majority of fish I mean the odd one I certainly put back but not many and I don't know anybody really that had the sense at that time to put them back it's sad to say but I do think that we certainly contributed quite significantly to that particular breeding stock whether that will ever return again, ooh, it's hard to say. It's very hard to say because where did they come from in the first place? The east coast of America, they've lost all layers off the Grand Banks. There's no significant improvement in their numbers off there. So is it likely we'll see them again? I, I don't know. And I'm not really sure where we're going to get our next run of big fish from. It's a bit sad for those that fish today, but there we are. You're absolutely right. We never returned anything other than stuff that was undersized, even when we had a boat full of fish. It was shameful, really. We could always find room in the freezer for fish to offset either the cod-free months or those times when the weather kept us shorebound. But that's the way it was back then. There are no excuses. Thankfully, people are more enlightened today and appreciate that it is a resource with limits, whether it be along the Lancashire coast, the Inner Clyde, or the Solway as you've also touched on. Which leads us nicely into what came next after the Clyde population was wiped out, leading you to turn your attentions to arguably Scotland's greatest ever shore cod hotspot, 
the one which produced the big fish mentioned in my opening comments, that being Balcari, which itself only produced for a few years before it too finally collapsed. So how do you think these fish might have been linked to the populations we mentioned previously? The Solway, in terms of the big fish that we encountered, it's quite interesting to understand, I think, why we were successful in those particular marks in the sort of Dalbidi area, is if you look at the charts themselves and have a look at what we would actually see on the ground, is that you get a number of sandbanks, major sandbanks in the Solway, and you had an area which was slightly deeper water, not massively, but slightly deeper water that started in the Colvend area, came back round up through Rascarl and off towards the ranges. And it's amazing that on the low waters, you would probably get most of the concentration of fish pushed into that little corner by the fact that the retreating tide was going to dry off these sandbanks. And of course, all the way through that particular area, right the way around from Colvend through Rockcliffe and all those bays were full of worm. And certainly in Organ Ken Bay, at Balcarry itself, it was quite well covered with big black worms, which were obviously the thing we would find in the fish once we were catching the fish that we landed. My favourite spots were generally associated around uh, Balcarry Point itself, around the saddle and down to the flat rocks. Although, probably for numbers, the, the most fish I ever had were down at Colven, which on the other side of Heston Island, down past Castle Point, Castle Point, of course, being the, the area that I believe the, the record Scottish cod had been taken from prior to the, the one that I got later on. But it's interesting that Colvend, when you're fishing at Colvend on the... There's a small island, sort of well left of, of Castle Point. As the tide goes back, you get a good idea of what you're actually fishing onto. To the left, it actually dries out, strangely enough, and you, you haven't got a great deal of water to the left on the bigger tides but it's fairly innocuous clean ground it's <laughs> quite surprising to be quite honest and I think the fact that the most successful fishing that you're going to ever get out there was uh, during periods of time where a sea had been on a fairly rough big stiff westerly uh, southwesterly had been on and, and sort of really stirred the bottom up there was a lot of colour in the water you would get the fish coming in and I'm sure there was just a load of worm in the water and, and as a consequence they would come in and feed on this and it was not too difficult to catch the fish in fact after the first sort of few times I'd fished on sort of Balcari and around that area by picking your weather picking all your conditions you could virtually predict when you were going to be successful and certainly you would know roughly what tides to fish when to fish and uh, the size of tides as you progressed around i mean colvend was a longish walk when you you had to park at the farm at colvend and obviously climbing across the fields which had been generally soaked uh, full of cows it was quite a plod through when you're carrying all the gear that you were carrying and obviously always carrying a couple of rods but at a decent bait while a lot of people sort of tried different baits by far the best were big black lugworms and I certainly wasn't beyond encouraging friends from the, the northwest to come across with their Blackpool lugworms. If it made my life a bit easier, because obviously the lugworms we were getting were pretty poor in us. We'd been up digging up at Berwick. 
But as regards the most prolific spot for the really big fish was Balcarry Point, the Saddle, Flat Rocks. That was definitely the place for the, the bigger fish. Walking in from the hotel at uh, Orton Ken, it was uh, quite a hump over the top. You had to come across a few fences. As all the fishing, or the best fishing, would be in January, February, it wasn't unknown to be totally iced up or full of snow, and it was bitterly cold. But those are the things you could put it with. In fact, whilst that I'm not particularly keen on going out in the cold these days, it didn't seem to phase one when you had the opportunity of catching decent fish. The only problem, I guess, with Balkarian, to a lesser degree, the Flat Rocks, was that it was a bit awkward to get to. Once you'd arrived at the cliff top, you had a, a clamber across some fairly significant rock features, and it was up and down, and certainly you, you had to be fairly careful just getting to the, the actual mark that you were going to fish from. The marks you were on were generally not particularly flat either, and a decent, really strong pair of boots saved, I guess, a few ankles. But one, once you're in position and you got yourself sort of down out of the wind a little bit, it wasn't too bad. The hardest of the problems were when you were into a decent fish and you actually had to find a way of landing it. Getting down to the water once you had a fish on presented quite a bit of problem. As I alluded to earlier, it was um, much better in terms of success rates if you had a, a half-decent swell running. Obviously, that <laughs> presents quite a danger if you're not careful. My answer to that, to a degree, was that I had a double extension gaff which made my life a little bit safer. But you still, because of the rise and fall and the fact that we were getting fish going on the dropping tide, sometimes meant you had a, a climb down of maybe 20 plus feet to get towards a position where you could actually gaff a fish. But you had to be very, very careful. Going back a few years, I wasn't actually there this particular time, but my pal had I fished with a lot. Been fishing the flat rock, they'd fished... I'm not sure they'd been over all, all night, but certainly they were, they were fishing with a, a good swell running up the flat rock. And it, as it suggests, it's a series of, of sort of flat ledges and you're fishing off the sort of back of that with a big swell running over it. And he went in. Now, uh, he was extremely lucky. I mean, he disappeared under the water several times. Shouldn't have got out, but he was extremely fortunate that the, the lad that was with him, one of our local tackle dealers, he thinks he'd sort of caught the line and managed, I don't know how you do with, with sort of 30 pound line, he managed to get himself back on the flat rock. He'd lost his chest waders, he'd had chest waders on when he went in the water and John had managed to get a hand on him and drag him out of the water and he he actually literally, he was half drowned at the time. He'd been in the water for quite a bit of time, got him out, uh, no chest waders, they'd gone and John had now had the problem of actually getting him back from the flat rocks, which is gain a climb back up, up to the cliff top and then another half mile walk back to where the car was. But he managed to, to get him out, get him up and carry him back to the car, left all the gear and everything. And fortunately for them, there was a, another couple of anglers who had either been fishing or were going down back at the car and, and they, they helped sort of revive him and get some dry clothes onto him and get him into the car. As it just amplifies the fact that it's absolutely dangerous if you're not careful and you, you don't sort of respect the conditions. The guy that went in, Chris, is um, still fishing today, very keen still, was back over uh, a fortnight later fishing the same place in similar conditions. And uh, I don't know whether he learned his lesson, but certainly you've got to be very, very careful.
fact, there's a, a little anecdote that goes with that one. John had, had been taken across by Chris in his car, and the next day after John had saved his life, pulled him out of the water, he, he'd actually dislocated or he pulled his shoulder out and was quite sore the next day. And I suppose the carrying of Chris back to the, the car hadn't helped, but the following day, Chris was fine and he'd come back into the shop to see John. And John had driven him home, albeit it was in Chris's car. And Chris had the cheek to ask him for the petrol money, which was <laughs> rather mean. But never mind, that's the way he was. But yeah, the actual ground that you're fishing on, the bottom that you're casting onto is relatively clean, very, very few obstructions. And as a consequence, you don't lose a lot of gear. But I think the, the main problem tended to be loose weed. Obviously, after a big blow, generally fishing medium-sized tides, medium to, well, the high side of medium sometimes, you would get a, quite a, a throughput of this horrible loose weed. Uh, and it wasn't unknown to get 10 or 20 pound of loose weed on a shock leader. What you generally find is that as the tide sort of starts to back off a bit, as it gets down to the slack waters, it eases off. And what you find is that that tends to be a little bit of a trigger in terms of or an indicator that the fish are going to start coming on. Now, whether that weed is through all the different depths, it's, it's hard to suggest and the fish are at the back of it, but certainly as that eases, then you would tend to get a, a run of fish if they're going to appear. From my sort of recollections, I can certainly remember getting a half-decent fish, a fish of about £25, with probably about £40 of weed on the shot leader knot. Knowing you've got this fish kicking... Not knowing that you've got a big lump of weed on it, it had the aspirations of being an absolute monster, but uh, it turned out to be a rather large lump of weed with it. Certainly a fish of a lifetime for most people. But uh, generally, the fishing ground there is very, very clean, and as a consequence, you don't need a lot of end tackle. You ain't going to lose a lot, so consequently, it's not too bad in terms of the volume of of tackle that you have to bring in. You mentioned the colour £25 there as being a half-decent fish, which speaks volumes about the potential of the mark back then. This prompts the question, what would be a good fish then? And what sort of numerical catches were you typically seeing? On a bad day, when (laughs) weather conditions were against it, you would quite often catch flounders. Flounders in rather large numbers and in rather large sizes. It wasn't unknown to get sort of £2 plus flounders on 6 hooks with big lugworm baits on. But that just annoyed you. That was just really a bit of a facey. But what we really were looking for were obviously the bigger fish. And if you picked your tides, got your tides right, and fished the right stage of the tide fishing, generally we, we would quite often go and dig a few worms, go to Rockliffe or go into the bay and get some decent worm. And we would start fishing prior to the, the sort of the high water, hit the slack high water prior to high water, then over the top, and you'd get the odd fish around then, and then you'd go into the strong period of tidal ebb, and it was as that would slacken off. That would be, from my experience, the the most prolific time. And as a consequence, it wasn't unknown not to bother fishing too early and go and fish that particular time, and fish at the absolute sort of peak of the fishing conditions in terms of a nice swell, a dying sea, nice colour in the water 
and the opportunities were great. You could see, to be quite honest, it was unusual to get small fish. I would suggest the majority of the fish that I took were in excess of £10. It was a good day if you got sort of two, three, four fish. Uh, my best day was at Colvin. I had nine fish one day for, oh, goodness knows. Well, the best fish was £29, and the smallest one was probably about seven or eight pound. So there was quite a reasonable amount of fish. But on Balkari, or the flat rocks, it, it was the norm. If you got everything right and you did get into fish, two was a good day, to be quite honest. Two big fish, 25, 30 pounds. I've had a number of occasions where I've had quite a lot of 20s. But I've had 30s, I've had several 30s. I've got a, a 32 and a, a 25 one day and I think the day I got the Scottish record which was the 40 pound fish I had three fish that day and I think there was a small one that day I think there was one about six seven pounds but I think you were doing quite well to get two really big fish and uh, was, I think a lot of people went there and caught nothing and that was for a whole season not just for a fishing trip so in the end Prior to its demise, um, I think we're extremely lucky in so much as that we had everything sussed out and if, as long as we picked the right weather conditions, then it was very infrequent that didn't actually get a good fish. So it's, uh, it was predictable, but unfortunately we didn't predict the end, the demise. We know when the fishing around Balcarry finished. What we don't know is how many years they'd been visiting the area previously and why, if they'd been around for so long, the commercialists failed to cotton on them before the anglers did. Not only that, besides managing to get in there year on year without being trawled up, what was the attraction that kept them coming? Well, it, it is possible that the head of fish wasn't absolutely massive. The numbers of fish weren't massive. The areas that they were, you were taking them from was very limited. Whilst the, the Solway is a fairly substantial body of water, the bigger fish are fairly sort of narrowly defined. You had the odd few moving up the east side and you had this tranche of fish that came into that one small area around sort of Dalbini, around the Balcari area. I'm positive you can see why they came into that little place. But when you consider the, the sort of narrow window of opportunity that you had during the year, was it really viable for the commercials to fish it? in that one little area when those fish probably only moved in and out that area as and when the conditions were right. Goodness knows where they held up or where they spawned, but there were sort of big fish, certainly big brood fish that were, were moving in there. And it begs the question, was it the same, absolutely the same sort of movement of fish from your sort of northwest area? the west coast and into that sort of Clyde estuary, Solway estuary, purely on a, an errand of breeding. <sighs> Makes you wonder. You've already given us a lot of detail regarding tides, locations and bait, but what about the actual tackle itself? What was needed to ensure both getting a bait out there and if you got lucky, getting a good fish back in? My personal preference was to fish sort of medium-sized tides Fishing anything that was really big was quite a problem, although you could get that window as the tide slackened off, which was when you did catch fish, but 
The most important factor, I think, after picking the, the sort of the medium tight, was that you desperately needed to have had a really good blow, a really good see on, and a stirrup of the bottom. That was the biggest attractor because certainly I think that the fish moved onto the shallows to a degree on the top water into the likes of Oaken Ken Bay and the swells would be sufficient, I would think, to certainly pull worm out and as a consequence a lot of the fish were full of these things. And what we benefited from was the fact that anything that did that, any of the fish that moved onto those flats and sort of foraged around there, had no option but to drop into the area in front of Balcari, Colvend, but certainly they couldn't go further out because of the sandbars and as a consequence they moved fairly close in and uh, that was really the, the thinking behind most of the trips that we had. We knew that if you picked everything right, you got your conditions right, you could see the forecast, you knew what had been blown, you knew how it was over there, you could jump in the car and be across there in a sort of two and a half hours, three hours for us and be quite successful. The tackle that we used was really quite basic in terms of it was no real difference from what we were using on the East Coast. It was something that was capable of actually putting a bait out. We weren't into fancy rigs, there was no need for fancy rigs. Put a bait out 100 yards or, or thereabouts and capable of actually pulling against a fairish tide and a double figure fish and what we had here, of course, we have the sentry factory not far from here and we're using a lot of sentry rods at the time. So what we had were reasonably fast taper carbon rods. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was sentry Tiger 216 that I got the big fish on, although I certainly had a few different sentry rods at that particular time being friendly with the factory. We had the opportunity to take rods across and catch big fish on them. But what was probably stock real for over there, for us, was certainly one we'd used, I think, for quite a long time. In fact, they're more than capable today of being used on the, the sort of coddling grounds. And that is the, the Abu 7000C, which is quite a strong reel, fairly robust, as long as you look after them. They, like all alloy reels, they're prone to corrosion. But uh, other than that, they're a good casting reel. And once filled it with line quite capable of putting casts out well in excess of 100 yards, which was more than ample for the likes of Balkari. Main lines, there was no need to have specifically heavy lines, main lines for uh, fishing there with the ground that we were fishing. There was absolutely virtually clean ground, so it was quite common to have 20, 25 pound using Maxima or Silcast. I'm not even sure they still make Silcast these days, but that was the sort of main lines we are using, but everything else from there on down, Chop leader, 50 pound, 50 pound trace line, uh, long flown trace, breakaway leads on, or if you're fishing on a sort of an upper, sort of medium sized tide or a biggish tide, it was possible to use a fixed lead using thick wires and you could hold out in the tide until you got too much weed on and then it was a case of get it in, get it off and get it back out again. But certainly you definitely needed decent trace it had to be at least 50 pound and the end of that was a 6-0 mustard the old vikings i've got loads of them still not that i use them very often but 6-0s were the name of the game although some people liked putting a panel rig out there not 
must have been our favourite. Straightforward, single hook, long trace. It worked for me and it, it certainly worked for a, a number of other people that have had reasonable success out there. I'm going to take it that it's big baits for big fish. So how are you actually presenting your black lug baits? We had difficulty in actually getting black lug. We could get some Berwick lugworms, which were not like your northwest, your Blackpool lugworms. These were stubby but thick, fat black things, which are about four inches long. The thick ones, you'll be using maybe three of those. So you've got a bait which is probably about 10 inches long when it's all put onto the hook. Or if you could look enough to, to sort of have somebody that came along with a bucket of Blackpool worms, then maybe you're using two really big runny downs, really big ones from there. But the key was definitely getting a big bait in there. And of course, don't leave it out in the water too long. Get it out, leave it out, maybe 15 minutes. Sometimes there were crab problems. And as I alluded earlier, <laughs> the worst nightmare was that you had a flounder and you didn't know it was on it, we just sat on your hook. That was a wasted cast, a just complete waste of time. And they would choke on the uh, big lugworm baits and the 6 hooks, but they took them down and uh, they were fairly prolific at certain times, which was a bit of a pain, but never mind. To put all of this into some sort of perspective, and for its importance as a piece of historical record, talk us through the session that produced the 40-pounder, a record which still stands now in 2013, and in my opinion will very likely continue to do so for many years to come. Basically I've been fishing the Dalbeaty Open at the weekend. I'd arranged to meet with one of the tackle manufacturers who'd been a contributor to a junior match I'd organised and been friendly with at the time. Now I'd invited Ken across. He was quite keen on actually seeing cod fishing. He hadn't done any. He'd lived in Wales. In fact, he lived somewhere up in the, the hills in Wales. So obviously... He was limited in, in his opportunities to catch cod, and so he was quite interested in having a run across. I'd arranged to meet with him the following morning, after I'd been home and came back. I'd arranged to meet him at the Balcarry Hotel, which was the parking spot for Balcarry Point. But when I got there, I found he'd left a note on his car, and he'd wandered across to where I'd fished the previous day on the Flat Rocks, thinking that was where I'd wanted to go and fish, and he'd I think his idea was to go and start as I wasn't going to get there till about nine o'clock. But I got there and I had the, the long walk and climb across and up to Balcarry itself to look at the point. I had a look over, looked down, nobody there, nobody on the saddle. I thought, well, I ain't going to fish on flat rocks if I've got the chance of fishing the point or around that area. So dumped my gear and had to wander all the way, which is probably about a good half mile or so, along the cliff top, down to the flat rocks, dragged him back up and went back and suggested to him that it was the right thing. Conditions were perfect for actually fishing off that particular area, off, off the point itself. And this, there was nobody there. It's just a no-brainer, really. You had to make the effort to come back up from the flat rocks. Uh, it didn't take much persuading. So here we are back sort of mid-morning, back down onto Balcarry itself, which is quite a, a climb down, getting onto the corner of the point adjacent to the saddle, which is where we, we based ourselves. I'm kitted up with a couple of rods, and Ken's got his, and we started fishing into the, sort of the, the top of the tide, and just sat back, as you do, wait and see what happens. Putting some big lugworm baits out there. We had plenty of bait from previous day and sort of scrounged a few from some of the Blackpool lads so bait was never going to be a problem and the conditions were good there's a nice bit of swell rolling still water is very coloured ideal so 
getting to a few bites, little bites on the the end of the the sort of the high water slack as the tide just started to pick up, and, and I, I got a, a smallish fish. What about five, seven pounds, something like that? It was about I don't know another oh, two or three hours before we actually got any sign of a change in the tide. After the tide started really pulling and starting to go back out again, it's about. It must be getting sort of three, four o'clock when Ken gets a bite. He gets a nice sort of pull on the rod, good slack line, and he's now saying he's he's actually got a fish on. Now, it's quite interesting because this is his first codling that he's ever caught, and he's now telling me he's got this wonderful fish on. Uh, obviously, no idea whatsoever how big it is or what it's going to be like. His gear was more suited to clean ground fishing round wheels i guess for bass and flounders and things but it was okay we sort of persevered with him getting that and getting him into a, a safe position to get the fish where i could actually get out of the water and get the gaff in but we, we slowly managed and I, I like to think i was reasonably competent with the gaff so climbing down about 15 feet I could get close enough with a double-handed gaff and I was into a fish and it was about 20 pounds. So here we are now, we've got a chap who's totally ecstatic. He's got a fish of a lifetime. He's got a 20 pound fish for his first codling. I'm glad somebody's happy. I've got a tappy lappy little seven pound fish, I think. And he's got a 20 pounder. But anyway, here we go. We sort of get baited up back in again. And of course, I'm changing baits all the time, putting the two rods out. And the tide's slowly still pulling out, and it, it's starting to get to the slack period of the tide. Weeds started to ease off, and I get another fish, get a, a bite, a half decent bite, nothing exceptional. Fish about ten pound, must be at least ten pound. Gets it in, comfortably get this one gaff and get it up. Another couple of bites, just tentative bites, nothing sort of consistent in terms of whether it's a slack line bite or a a decent pull but just taps could have been anything from codlins to flounders i guess but what we're looking for really is a what we get here quite often is a, a good slack line bite we're now getting down towards darkness and uh, i actually get a really interesting nice sort of bite pick the rod up go down to strike and i actually go to strike and this fish is just swimming away and whilst you you get them that swim in, you get some that swim out. This one actually swimming out and it takes line. And I, I've had fish in the 30s and I can't remember another fish, codling that is, or cod, that took line. It's unusual and certainly striking at the fish. And now I, I know I've got a fish on that, that's a good fish. Now, it's obviously at that stage you haven't got a clue what it is you you know it's it's half decent it could be a 20 or 30 could be anything but got this fish on now starting to reel the fish in just gradually just taking the time pumping the fish and it's slowly coming in but it it's quite vigorous and it's occasionally stopping really stopping the line that just there's there's no sort of giving it at that stage and it, it's quite unusual because usually you can herd a fish, for want of a better word, with the line just constant pressure. But occasionally this particular fish was actually turning and, and trying to take line and taking to a, a small degree. Uh, but the worst scenario here was that 
you've got the tide which is ebbing, the light which is receding, disappearing completely. And I know from experience that because I'm now on the point and I've moved down the rocks, out towards the front, the fish is moving towards the right and moving towards what is the, the, the point of the saddle which at low water sneaks out a bit at least as far as the point and the worst worst case scenario is that this fish goes round the point and you lose it because your main line touches the hard rock of the point so I've got a problem of do I attempt to do the climb down and around and up under the saddle or do I try and work my way down further onto the front of the point and try and keep enough pressure on the fish to get the fish in towards without going round the point itself, or of the saddle that is. And uh, that's really the option that I chose. So after about, oh, don't suppose it was a massive amount of time, but certainly I would think 10 minutes thereabouts, getting the fish back towards the side, it was... Uh, then presented with a completely different problem is that we've got Ken who has now caught his first cod but hasn't really gaffed or landed or helped assist landing a fish and I've got this fish which I've now moved in towards me past the inside of the saddle and down at the base of the point. Now the, the problem of course is that A it's not very safe to go down B, it's a quite a drop in terms of uh, I'm now about 20 feet above and he has to get down and I've got my lamp. I can't actually, I caught sight of the fish in the light in the little gully between the saddle and the point and I've seen it a good fish. Don't know how good it is, but it's a big fish. It's a white, big monster. And I've got this novice with my big gaff going down and the only way I can get it right up to the side is by me moving backwards so that my view of the fish is blocked by the craggy bits of rock in front of me. It <laughs> doesn't bode well but I ease the fish to the side and I move backward a touch just out of sight of this and Ken's now down by the water as near as he can get with that swell on and he's got the gaff and I'm just shouting at him and hoping and the next thing is here he appears gaff fish and coming up the, the side and of course rod down grab hold of this and i know this is something special i've, I've seen 30 so i know it's way top end of that i've got this super duper fish but get it down shaking standing around what's the next thing that you do well you get baited up don't you get the gear back on get it back out and think, well, I'm going to get something else, aren't I? I'm going to catch another one. But uh, cast out anyway, got it all beat up, everything's in. And sort of now taking stock of what have I got here? What What is it? So I'm going back to the, the after casting in, to the, the fish line. And I'm now thinking, well, hang on a minute. This is quite a large fish. This is something that could be... Towards forty pound, it could be, uh, it could be anything. I've now sort of lost the plot, I guess. But after about sort of twenty minutes without a bite, my attention's gone, and I'm sort of know I need to, to get this thing back, get it somewhere, and, and see whether we can actually identify 
how big it actually is. And we've got this long walk, we've got to climb back up over the top. So not only have we got the usual arduous climb up from the rocks where we are, and it's going to take me a number of trips just to get the rods and the gear and everything up to the top of the cliffs again and back onto the path across and over the fields. But we've got the added weight of all these fish. And Ken's got this 20 in. So we, what, I don't know, we've got 60 or 70 pound of fish to carry and get it back to the car. So anyway, we sort of get everything up and I don't know how long it took us to get it, get everything back to the car, but eventually got it back to the car. Now, bearing in mind that I live on the East Coast, Ken Grimmer's from North Wales, we packed everything up and I can't remember what we'd agreed, but I think it from memory, the initial idea was, we'll see if we can find somewhere to get it weighed, if there's a possibility. Now, this is sort of evening in Barcari to start with, and then to the nearest town, so we went to, I think it was Dalbidi we went into. Where do you go to get a fish weighed? So we went to the fish shop. Well, <laughs> maybe they've got some weights to measure out potatoes. No idea, but I don't think it was a very good idea. But anyway, it was, it was a thought, and they had no idea where to go. So, of course, time's ticking on. The fact that I'd carried this fish in a big sack on my back, um, it was oozing sort of stuff out of its back end and losing weight all the time on the climb across. It was all down my back and never mind. It was uh, it was a, a worry in terms of we knew it was something special and really did need to get it weighed. So now I've got to make a decision. How am I going to get this weight? Because it's now getting quite sort of late in the evening. So, right my decision, jump in the car and zoom back across to the East Coast. I know that I've got access to uh, our clubhouse and our clubhouse has got a bona fide set of scales which have been properly measured and scaled in terms of measuring specimen fish. So if I could get it there in a reasonable time, not a problem. It would be super duper. It would uh, solve the problem. So now I'm telling Ken what I've decided. Ken's got a minor problem in this. He's now got to get back to Wales, but he, he doesn't really know where he is and how he's got to get himself back to the M6. So I tell him, you just tag along behind me. I'm going to zoom off home. You follow me to the M6 and you can dot off. So tearing out of Dalbeat and onto the, the main road, I'm flying away. I'm an autopilot. All I want to do is get home. I can see his lights in the background and I'm zooming down the road. So the amber lights in front of me and I think, oh, I can go straight through those. So I went straight through those. Ken now wants to tag onto me. Lights are on red. He goes through them on red. The next thing I see is a blue light behind, and he's getting pulled up. And I think that was the last I saw of him for for a long, long time. I don't know what happened to him, but uh, certainly it was quite a weekend for him. But anyway, I, I'd sort of just driven home totally on autopilot, about two and a half hours back to the clubhouse, and... Uh, went in there, put it on the scales, had a go at weighing it, and it had sunk over the, the 40 pounds. And I thought, my, well, what do I do now? This is now about, well, it must be one o'clock in the morning, before the time, certainly when I, I think it was before they even, they had the old brick mobile phones, the big bricks, but we didn't have mobile phones then anyway. I had to get somebody to uh, witness the fish and see exactly what, what sort of size we had here. So the clubhouse actually is a, 
or the car park for our fishing clubhouse was a, a favourite haunt for courting couples. I'm fairly euphoric now. I've been in the clubhouse. I've got a fish which is about £40. I've come out from weighing it, come outside, still not sure what I'm doing, but sees the van outside and there's a couple in the van and of course I go knock on the van and, and all of a sudden I, I, I get these two characters sort of doing whatever they do and uh, quickly engine goes on and they zoom out the car park. I, I think they were just totally phased by the fact that this lunatic shouting something about fish and weights and uh, can you help us? Uh, it totally phased them and they decided it was um, better off zooming out of there. So what next? My thoughts were there's a telephone box over the road. I'll go and phone somebody up and I'll get somebody to come down and, and be my witness. So across I go into the phone box and I think I'll phone my mate Arthur I'm sure he'll be all right. So I rings his phone and obviously like a lot of people has a telephone by the bed and his wife answers the phone now this is I don't know half past one in the morning and I get the usual what do you want do you know what time it is and of course just straight off the top of my head I've got a fish I need it win I've, I've got it's over 40 pounds and I need Arthur to come down and do my this witness thing so anyway eventually I think I persuaded him. I don't know what his wife said, and she still picks on me to this day anyway, but I'm not really bothered. But he comes down, and it was, I think, a pleasure for him to, to come down. In fact, for days afterwards, I ridiculously had still had this fish, and uh, people were coming around to see this fish before I carved it up. In retrospect, it should have gone back. It was uh, crazy, but those were the things we did then. And uh, it was certainly a fish of a lifetime. And whether that will stand, I certainly haven't heard of anything approaching £40 since. And uh, to be quite honest, I don't think I've heard of anything £30 in the last sort of 10 years or so from the shore. So it's uh, interesting to see what happens or whether anybody finds another run of fish. Uh, my personal opinion is that if there is going to be some big fish, it's going to be way, way, way up north of the Scottish Islands, somewhere around there, if we're lucky enough to contact the really big fish again from the shore. After all that, you didn't tell us the weight. <laughs> Righty-ho. After taking it in for weighing into the clubhouse, I had selected a, a set of scales that I knew we'd actually had measured by the, the weights and measures people previously, and that fish registered 40 pounds 11 and a half ounces and turned out to be a scottish record i'm trying to think i think the scottish record prior to that was something like 35 pound but 40 pounds 11 ounces and i think the only the only other one i can think of that's bigger than that the british record which is a one from barry island if i'm not mistaken now I'd... yeah it was 44 and a half pounds back in the mid 1960s it makes you wonder where that one came from. But 40, 40 11, and will it ever be beaten? If you remember, I had the head of that particular fish to remove its otter list for ageing, which I'm sure I still have somewhere if I look. Did you actually age them, did you? I didn't have access to machinery for breaking them cleanly, so with hindsight, scales would have been a better bet, particularly as I did have access to the right equipment for reading those. Be interesting to know how old it was. It's sad, though, that, you know, we killed all these 
major breeding animals. I mean, they're, they've got to be the, the real root of the sort of genetic line, the ones that are capable of growing to that sort of size. Then suddenly it was all over. Obviously, with big fish always a rare commodity, that might not have been immediately apparent. How long then did it take to sink in that the party was finally over? Um, well, to be quite honest, the, the window of opportunity in terms of catching the fish was very, very limited. And as a consequence, we very rarely fished outside the January-February period. From memory, I believe that we were successful one year. The following year was more or less non-existent. There was the odd fish and that was it gone. It was as literal as ours. It virtually ended overnight in terms of you had that season and then there was nothing. There wasn't a slow sort of turn off of the tap. One year was fairly good. The next year we, uh, to be quite honest, the number of times on the first unsuccessful years we went, got nothing on poor condition times, went on tides where it was sort of good but not perfect conditions, we're getting nothing and uh, the majority of the times I think the tides, the conditions, there was never a perfect period and as a consequence that particular year was just a complete write-off and the following year was just non-existent whatsoever. There just wasn't any reports of any fish at all. Now whether the locals are catching the odd fish and not reporting them, I don't know. But maybe that's for the good, to be quite honest, because in hindsight, if we hadn't broadcast the fact that there were some super-duper fish there and we killed them all, then there may still be a few there now. In your opinion then, will or might the Solway Cod Sea never come back? Or like me, do you feel your record is safe pretty much for all time now? <sighs> it's hard to say. Looking at the history of fishing for cod... My view is that that's very, very unlikely to return. The only way I see a return of that type of good cod fishing is if there's a, a complete ban on fishing for an extensive period. And that probably includes anglers in areas of, of nursery perspective, basically. I think if you look at the history of the cod and you look at the likes of the Grand Banks and places like that where it was completely ruined. It's never, ever returned. Never. And that's because there's still, I guess, a lack of core breeding fish and the fact that there's still a tinkering around the edge by the commercials as soon as there's an opportunity, then they kill everything. If you look at the, the sort of Scandinavian fishing, they get some very, very big fish. But is it because they don't fish commercially extensively? the breeding grounds or is it there's areas that can't be fished it's difficult to ascertain but they get bigger fish than us and they you know will ever get and your thoughts now on the loss of such a prolific and iconic shore cod mark oh i think it's a dire opportunity unfortunately it's very very sad that we've all contributed or potentially contributed to its demise it has the potential for being an interesting landmark fishing spot but for whatever reason, we, we, we've actually lost this vital opportunity, I think, for something that future anglers are not going to experience. The problem is it's such a small area to start with. It, it wouldn't really stand the sort of um, attrition that 
I think today's exposure would cause the way people can travel today so simply. Uh, the fact that they can buy quality bait, the tackle itself is relatively cheap. Uh, you could go and exploit the likes of the Balkari areas very, very, very simply. And it wouldn't last five minutes if those fish reappeared. I think they would be queuing to actually get back onto some of these marks, which, if you think about it, is also a sort of condemnation of the whole loss of the angling experience in sort of lower Scotland, in the Clyde estuary, in the Solway estuary, whilst these super-duper big cod might be a, a beacon for quality fishing. The whole of that infrastructure had the potential for being a, a wonderful fishing area for a variety of species and I would have thought a, a major banker for Scotland. It's just unbelievable that one way or another we have created a little bit of a, a nightmare for ourselves. It's sad, but that's where we lie today. Listening to all of this is both fascinating and at the same time heartbreaking when you think of what could be as evidenced by the big fish that you and others had access to back then. Could it or will it ever come back? Well, only time will tell. My own feeling is that certainly for commercially exploited species like cod and haddock, such catches are now the stuff of history. Bass, though equally important commercially, might have a bit more of a chance if moves currently underway to have them declared a recreational species only ever come to fruition. Sadly, I personally don't see that ever happening, but we'll let history be the judge. For now, let me thank you for fleshing out your part in the history of Balcarry with us here. And probably like most of the people listening to what you just had to say, feel more than a little bit envious at your achievements. <laughs> <laughs>